come in slowly. All right, let's uh, pray as we get started. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to hear your word. And Lord, just pray that you'd be changing each and every one of us this morning as we study uh, the seventh commandment and continue to look at that, try to understand every layer of it. Lord, pray that you would convict us of ways that we've fallen short of your law and that you would then through that work in us knowledge of the gospel that we'd we would know that Jesus paid it all and that even though we failed, he never failed once. Just pray, Lord, that uh, you would work that in each and every one of us this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're continuing this morning looking at the seventh commandment, and you can find that in Exodus 20. Exodus chapter 20, um, I believe it's verse 14. Yes. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. This is the seventh commandment. And the seventh commandment says, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Now, there we've, we started looking at this commandment a lot last week, right? This is our second week looking. But last week, we'd done a couple of things in looking at this commandment. Uh, The first thing we did was we looked at what Jesus had to say about the seventh commandment. That's a great place to start, right? Figure out what Jesus had to say about something. So that's what we did. And we looked at Matthew 5. And what Jesus had to say about the seventh commandment reveals something really important about it. See, the people in Jesus' day, as we talked about last week, were very much under the uh, impression that the commandments were basically all about the external that God's commandments only had to do with outward things. So when the Jewish community would look at the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, at least the Jewish community in Jesus' day, they would say, oh, you shall not commit adultery. That means you can't physically commit adultery. That's the only thing the commandment is forbidding. It doesn't have anything to do with the mind. It's just what you do. But Jesus came to them and said, no, there's something a whole lot more here in this commandment than just the physical. That's important. That's the big thing this commandment is getting at. But Jesus said, anyone who lusts after a woman commits adultery with her in his heart. And so that is what Jesus brings to the table. He says, hold on a second. These commandments are not just external. They're not just about things you do on the outside. They're also about what goes on in your heart. And you can actually break these commandments in your heart. We saw that with thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, if you hate someone, you've murdered them in your heart. These commandments have a profoundly internal aspect to them. That was the first thing we looked at last week. Second thing was we asked the question, why is it that we have a commandment about adultery in the Ten Commandments? Why is it that when God formulated his top ten moral laws, that he decided that adultery should be one of them? And the reason that we saw as we looked at the whole of scripture last week is that marriage was designed to be a picture or an image or an analogy of God's relationship to his people. The union of a man and a woman in marriage was designed to be a picture of God's covenantal union between him and his people. And that's why we see in the commandment itself in Exodus 20, 14 that you're looking at in your Bibles right now, you see that word where it says to commit adultery, those two words, that is, in the Hebrew, a word that can also be translated as practice idolatry. 
So commit adultery and practice idolatry can be the same word in Hebrew. And it can be translated either way. And the reason for that is because God saw idolatry for Old Testament Israel as being adultery for his relationship to his people. Because God saw himself as married to his church, his Old Testament church. Christ is married to the New Testament church, right? We see that same imagery carried throughout the scripture. God saw himself as married to his people. He sees himself as married to his people. And when we, as the Old Testament says, say for the Israelites, when the Israelites went whoring after other gods, that's strong English, but that's in the Bible. When they went whoring after other gods, that is marital imagery, adulterous imagery, because they mirror each other, a marriage and God's relationship to his people. What's actually interesting, I didn't mention this last week, but I just found this out this week. The word for Baal in the Old Testament, you know, the false god Baal, that word, it literally means husband. So when it says that the Israelites went whoring after the Baals, in the Hebrew, it's, an, it's double meaning. It means they went whoring after the false god Baal, but it also means they went whoring after other husbands. And it's just a fascinating way that, that marriage is used throughout the Old Testament as being a picture of God's relationship with his people. And so that's why God values marriage so much, why the marriage covenant is so important to him. Because it's a picture of his relationship to his people. And when marriage is destroyed, when marriage is marred by sin, that mars the sign that God established for the relationship with his people namely marriage. And so that is why it is so important to God. All right, Adam just walked in the room, so I got to tone down the heresy a little bit and keep this really safe. And then the third thing we looked at last week, right, is we looked at um, what is required in the seventh commandment. What is required in the seventh commandment? And we saw there were a lot of things required. There's a big list. We've got an even bigger list today of things that are forbidden in the commandment. We'll get to there in a second. But all the things we talked about last week that the seventh commandment requires when it says thou shalt not commit adultery basically are summed up by saying you shall preserve marriage or you shall be faithful to your spouse. Uh, That's the positive version of of the command you shall not commit adultery. You shall be faithful to your spouse. And all the things we looked at last week that were required for us to do in the commandment are things that are meant to back up that claim we are to be faithful to our spouses. And that's all the things that we looked at last week. So now let's get on to this week. What are we going to do today? I got two things for us to do today. First thing is we're going to look at what's forbidden in the commandment. What does thou shalt not commit adultery forbid us from doing? And it's a long list. It's a lot of stuff. And I think it's good for us to just wrestle with it and to get it into our, our hearts and our minds. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about a special issue related to the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And that, of course, the most obvious special issue that comes up is the issue of divorce. What does the Bible have to say about it? How do we deal with it in our church and our families and those sorts of things? And I'll share some stories with you about that later. But we want to look at that particular issue because it's a serious issue. It's an issue that we face living in a sinful world, and we want to know what the Bible has to say about it and what this commandment has to say and what it bears upon in that issue. Okay, so without further ado, let's get into those two things. Firstly, what is forbidden in 
the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And I'm following here pretty closely question 139 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, just FYI. So these are the things that our catechism recognizes as being forbidden in this commandment. Firstly, you shall not commit adultery means that adultery is forbidden, (laughs) naturally and obviously. Adultery is forbidden. And we need to ask the question then, what's adultery? We kind of all have a general definition in our minds of what adultery is. But just to be clear, adultery, if we just define it really broadly, basically just means unfaithfulness to your spouse. But what's particularly emphasized when we're forbidden from adultery in the scriptures that we see as we you know, consult the whole counsel of God, what's specifically involved here is sexual infidelity to our spouses. Right? Sexual unfaithfulness. That's what is mostly in view with adultery. Now, you can commit adultery in other ways by being emotionally unfaithful to your spouse or things like that. But particular emphasis on the sexual infidelity, that is what is first and foremost forbidden in this commandment because it's obviously forbidden. It says you shall not commit adultery. So that's number one, what is forbidden. And secondly, close related to that is fornication. That's number two. Fornication is also forbidden. Now, you've heard the, the word fornication if you've read the Bible much or, or heard it read before, but you, you might not know exactly what fornication means. Fornication essentially means sexual intimacy with anyone outside the bonds of lawful marriage. Sexual intimacy with anyone outside the bonds of lawful marriage. And this is important to recognize. It may sound like adultery. It may sound like the same thing. But there's an important distinction. Imagine for a second that this commandment only forbade adultery. It only forbade being unfaithful to a spouse. Well, this commandment then would have significant bearing on those of us who are married... But for anyone who's not married, it wouldn't matter directly. You could, I mean, you could imagine a teenager saying, yeah, I'm not, mom, I, you know, I'm, I'm living a promiscuous life. I'm sleeping around on my college campus, whatever. But that's not breaking the commandment. It just says you have to be faithful to your spouse. I don't have a spouse, so I'm good. But what we need to recognize is this commandment doesn't just forbid adultery in the narrow sense for only married people, but it's also forbidding fornication. Fornication is any sexual activity with anyone whom you're not married to in a lawful marriage. So this forbids that. It forbids homosexuality because that's not lawful marriage. That's, that is out-of-bounds sexual activity. And, of course, the Scripture forbids that in other places, but it's indirectly forbidden in this commandment. So we've got adultery and fornication. Any kind of sexual intimacy outside the bonds of a man and a woman married. That is what is forbidden. Thirdly, rape and incest, naturally, that's forbidden. That's also sexual activity outside of the bonds of lawful marriage. Number four, bestiality. Again, sexual intimacy outside the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman, very clearly. Um, So I'm just going through these here because we want to get into, we've got so many of them here. Uh, Number five, unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. Uh, We talked about this a decent amount last week when the things that were required in this commandment, one of them was that we need to have chaste thoughts and imaginations and things like that, namely faithful activities in our minds, activities in our minds that are faithful to our spouses. Okay, And what is forbidden? 
naturally the opposite, unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. And we talked last week about why this is the case. Why is it that Jesus is so concerned with this commandment, not simply on the outside, but on the inside, where he says, you don't, you don't just break this commandment when you commit adultery physically, but you break this commandment when you commit adultery in your mind. Why is this important? Why does Jesus do this? Well, he says in Matthew 15, 19. You don't have to turn there. But Matthew 15, 19, I'll quote it for you. This is Jesus speaking. He says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. Now notice what he said. He said, out of the heart proceed adulteries and fornications and murders and all those things. See, Jesus is the best psychologist you could ever consult for anything related to human beings. And Jesus knows our psyche. He knows how human beings work because he made us. And he knows that sin, as we talked about last week, does not start on the outside. Sin starts in the heart. Sin begins here. The seed is planted. Evil thoughts are what breed evil actions. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. Out of the heart proceed adulteries. That's why the catechism warns us here. It says, what is forbidden in this commandment? Unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. Why? Because those imaginations and purposes and affections cause us, or can at least, cause us to sin. They can grow into things we never even thought possible. I, one of the things I used to do a few years ago was I used to spend a lot of time reading and listening to uh, Christian psychology and Christian counseling. And I'd listen to Christian counseling radio programs and I'd be reading Christian counseling books and things. And they were, I, I really was interested in the topic of you know, adultery and why it happens and that sort of thing. And the common thread that I found in reading you know, articles and books and all those kinds of things is that adultery never started spontaneously. It never happened because someone just decided to do something one day. It almost always happened because before it actually happened, the person was thinking about it and dwelling on it. And those unclean imaginations and fantasies grew this one guy I remember listening to, he would say, wow, he said, adultery starts like this. Someone's saying, wow, I wonder what it would be like to be married to this person. I bet I'd be happier being married to this person than somebody else. And then fantasies start to come and you to fantasize about the, the death of your spouse and the death of this person's spouse. And oh, that would free us both up and then we can get together and then everything would be good. It's amazing what our minds can do. And so some of us, we might think, wow, that's crazy. I'd never do that. But that's how adultery starts, that kind of thing unclean imaginations that begin to grow and they come to fruition in all kinds of sin. And so that's why the catechism warns us about this. We can't let that happen to us. What's forbidden? Unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. We've got to guard against those. And we guard against those not just in this commandment, right? But this is something that can apply to all areas of sin. Murder or worshiping false gods or, you know, all kinds of different things. We could come up with it all. That's why Jesus wants to emphasize this internal aspect of the commandment, because it can cause such great pain if we're not watching it. So that's five. Number six, all corrupt and filthy communications 
Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5 where he says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becomes saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving thanks. There's a lot of stuff Paul's talking about here. But I think the principle he's trying to get across is that what we say affects our reputations. Okay. Now here's what he, this particular part of uh, our catechism is warning us about. Okay. What we say affects the reputations. Here's what I mean by that. An example, I had a friend at a Bible college who would joke a lot about getting drunk on the weekends. Okay? Now, he was a Christian, and he was a good guy for the most part, right? But he would joke about this. He never drank. I don't think he ever had a drink in his life at that point, but he'd joke about it because he thought it was cool. And I knew that he was joking because I knew him well enough. But there were a lot of people on the campus that didn't think that he was joking. They thought he was serious. See, what he didn't know was that his speech, what he said, what he joked about, what his, his, um, the, the stories he found amusing to tell people, the made up stories or whatever, he didn't realize that people were actually believing that and it was affecting his reputation as a Christian. That's what Paul is warning about here in Ephesians 5. He's saying, don't, don't be filthy. No foolish talking or foolish jesting. Why? Because we don't want fornication or uncleanness or covetousness to even be named among you as Christians. Don't joke about these things. Don't, don't tell dirty jokes, essentially what he's saying. I feel like I'm talking to a, a youth group here, but it's the same principle, right? Don't do this. Why? Because it ruins our witness as Christians. Because some people, if they don't know us well enough, may think we're serious. So we have to guard our mouths. To guard our mouths. And not only does it hurt our witness, it hurts us too, because we become desensitized to the things we're joking about anyway. So that's what's, uh, what they're getting out here in this point. All corrupt and filthy communications are forbidden. Why? Because it ruins our witness and it affects us. Um, number seven, wanton looks. 2 Peter 2 talks about people who have eyes full of adultery. This is directly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. when he said, anyone who looks upon a woman with lust commits adultery with her in his heart. Right? No wanton looks. Why? Because they give birth to adultery. It happens over and over and over again. Oh, but I'm just looking. I'm not hurting anyone. This person doesn't even know I'm checking them out. Sorry, Jesus forbade it. Why? Because it's wrong, first of all, and second, it leads to greater sins. Wanton looks are forbidden. Um, eight, immodest apparel. We talked about this a lot last week, so I won't go into it too much. Of course, that's forbidden if we are encouraged to wear modest apparel, as we learned last week. Uh, nine, prohibiting of lawful marriages and conducting unlawful marriages. Uh, conducting an unlawful marriage be marrying people who aren't supposed to be married. Right? Homosexual marriage would be a good, good identification of this. Of course, in a certain sense, that's not real marriage because it's not recognized before God, but that's a whole other issue. But look at the first part here, or listen to the first part since you're not looking at it. Uh, prohibiting of lawful marriages. That is forbidden. Now that's kind of an interesting 
interesting thing to forbid, isn't it? Forbidding of lawful marriages. Why can't people forbid lawful marriages? Well, it has its roots in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says, when he says if, if people can't contain, that is, if they can't live as celibate people because they have sexual desires, well, let them get married. Right? Now, that's, that's not Paul saying this is the only reason for marriage is so that you can you know, fulfill your sexual appetite. He's not saying that, that marriage was endowed for that reason. All he's saying is this is a very practical benefit to marriage if you're struggling with this issue. If you're struggling, get married. Right? It's just a practical advice from the Apostle Paul. And what happens is if someone comes in and forbids marriage from that person, the person says, man, I can't contain. I want to do what Paul says. I want to get married. I need an outlet for these. I found the one, and we love each other. We want to get married. And someone comes along and says, no, you can't get married. I prohibit this lawful marriage. What that does is it makes the person who's prohibiting the marriage an accomplice to any breaking of the adultery commandment that happens as a result of that. All right? Yes, Adam. I've got an example of that. Perfect. Uh, When I was going to college in Phoenix... I had a classmate, I'd gone to school with him I think for three years, and at the end of his three years he's about to graduate, and he and his girlfriend, they had been engaged for a while. Her father decided that he didn't like my friend and didn't want uh, him to get married. Now, uh, he specifically asked him, you know, is there something I've done? Have I sinned? Is there something biblically that prohibits me and your daughter from getting married? And he said no. My friend's suspicion was that he didn't like the line of work he was going into. He was going to get a philosophy degree. Uh. <laughs> one of my classmates, he said, I know this is going to happen here. You know, he lives in Scottsdale. He's got a nice house. He's well off. He's invested. He's got lots of money. And his daughter's going to marry this schlub yeah. who's going to end up moving furniture for the next five years. And... <laughs> um, and yeah, her father forbid them to get married. Now they did still get married, but it caused tremendous uh-huh. uh, trouble in their family. Uh, her father wanted something better for her, mm. and so he forbid the uh-huh. marriage that was lawful. Mm. I think that would be an example of that. Yeah, before. that's a great example of that. You know the difference between a philosopher and a large pizza? A large yeah. pizza can feed a family of four. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, that's a bad one. You had a philosophy major, so I had to say that to you. Yeah, oh, no. I, no I, I, there need to be more philosophy majors. Yes, right. I, I probably could have had a philosophy major. I took enough philosophy courses for that. But anyway, that's a great example, right? The forbidding of lawful marriage can cause, other, can cause those people that want to get married to sin. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that the, those people who wanted to get married who then sin are not at fault. Right? They're, they're still sinners. They're still at fault. But the person who forbids the marriage and causes that to happen is also at fault. Uh, not in as much fault, but still. So that's what's getting in here. That's exactly the example I was going to give. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Yeah. So what's interesting is if you look at history, for those of you who don't know, Roman Catholic priests are forbidden from getting married ever in their life. Okay, and that that is so that they can devote themselves wholly to God and to their study and ministry and so on. Supposedly, that's the reason. The problem is when you study history, that's not at all usually what happens. Certainly, there are some good priests, of course. But if you look at history, the reputation of the Roman Catholic priests throughout medieval times, the Reformation, up until present day, is a history of sexual promiscuity and incest and homosexuality and prostitution and all kinds of stuff. And even today, it's crazy. I was just listening to Albert Moeller and his uh, thing called The Briefing. 
it's a 20 minute every day Monday through Friday Albert Muller does a 20 minute thing on um, current events and politics and things and he's been talking about it and oh it's just crazy even now there's uncovering all kinds of crazy stuff uh, it's it's on a podcast I think you can go to like thebriefing.org or something like you just search the briefing on Google and you'll find it it's Albert Muller's program it's really good I, I enjoy listening to it okay there you go so anyway, long story short, don't prohibit a lawful marriage, all right? That's what's going on here because we don't want to cause other people to sin because that brings guilt upon us and we want to avoid that as much as possible. Okay, next, entangling oneself in vows of a single life. Entangling oneself in vows of a single life. This isn't so common today, although it does exist. We don't normally take vows of celibacy today, though some, some people do. Most people just generally say, well, I might have the gift of celibacy and just kind of live their life that way. But what this is commanding people is don't make vows saying, I promise I will never get married the rest of my life. Why is that? Because you might change your mind. And then you'll either have to live the rest of your life under this vow that you made before God, or you will have to break your vow that you made before God. Both of those things are not good things. So don't entangle oneself in vows of a single life. Yes. You have you have experience with this, Adam? Well, I do not. Actually, when I was going to college, I was convinced I was going to be like a monk. And I thought I wasn't going to get married. So that, that, I should just keep asking him for examples. This is great. And I met my wife, and she still laughs about it. Because I think we had a, we went, I went and hung out one point, and I told her that. She was like, oh, challenge accepted. <laughs> I like that. Uh, but the but actually, what I was going to mention was this has some relevancy actually today. Okay. In, in the sense that what's really what's really being talked about there is somebody who doesn't have the gift of celibacy, mm-hmm. right? They don't have they do have passions, but they say I'm not going to get married. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really what you're dealing with. In yep. Is somebody yep. taking a vow for something that is actually they don't have the gift for, and that has relevancy right now because at the moment. In the in the, the Presbyterian world, there is debate over what somebody who is same-sex attracted ought to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. And right yeah. Now, yeah. And right now, there are, is a certain school of thought. It's I think the I keep mixing up side A side B. There are side B Christians who say that yes, it's true, homosexual activity is a sin. It is it is wrong even if you have the desire to do it. But they say. That you're, you should never expect that that desire to go away. You should always expect to have it. And so, what they teach is, you're going to live a celibate life. You're going to live a single life for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, historically, what you had was you had people who probably experienced same-sex attraction, but they would still get married. They would still have a marriage. They'd still have a family. They mm-hmm. would struggle through their their desires. Um, you know, today people look back on that as like some some sad thing, like this closeted lifestyle. But what was actually happening was people were saying, "Look, I don't have the gift of celibacy. I burn with desire. I mm-hmm. need to be married in a lawful way." So they would still get married even if they had those struggles. But now, every the, the message that's really coming out from a lot of a lot of folks who are very well meaning, they say, "Look, uh, marriage isn't something for this person," is what they'll say mm-hmm. because they have same-sex desires can't be with somebody mm-hmm. who's of the same sex, they can't have that kind of marriage, therefore they're going to live a single life. Mm-hmm. Well, that person is, doesn't have the gift of <laughs> celibacy. They don't have the, 
the uh, ability to, to keep that tamped down, as it were. Yeah. Um, and so what would actually, you know, biblically, what should they do? They should get married. And they should get married in biblical marriage, mm-hmm. even if they have struggles that they're going to experience through that and difficulty that's mm-hmm. not going to be maybe ideal. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's still better than burning the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah, that that is a really good application of this. I didn't even think of revoice, so thanks, thanks for. That. I was thinking like monasticism and asceticism and that sort of thing, but that, that still does happen today. Well, I mean, too. think about the monks that are taking vows of celibacy. Yep, yep that happens too. Exactly. So yeah, there's a lot of application for this one, and uh, essentially, don't do it. All right, that's the bottom line here because it, it gets complicated, but just don't do it. All right, you want to consult the word and listen to the voice of God as he leads you in your life to what he wants you to do. Okay, um, so let's see, where are we at here? Oh, next one. Here's another good one for today's culture. What else is forbidden in this commandment? The undue delay of marriage. What's the common message today for people my age and younger and older? Oh, get married when you're 45, you know, after you've lived your life and you're ready to retire. 45. Uh, no, not literally the retire part. But you get the general message, though. Wait as long as you can until you get married. Wait till you've lived your life and you've, you know, had as much fun and as many bedrooms as you can before you get married. Delay it as long as you can until you're ready for to settle down and for your fun young life to be over. The prince is in William. What about them? Oh, they wait a long time? Okay. So I'm not very familiar with the whole, the whole royalty over there. But anyway, I am familiar with what people are saying to my generation, and that is delay marriage. And the problem is the reason why this commandment is saying don't unduly delay your marriage is because all you're doing is widening the time period for sexual temptation. You are burning with passion for longer than you're supposed to in Paul's terminology. And so we don't want to delay our marriage unduly. Now, we do delay our marriage if we haven't found the person that we need to marry. We don't just like marry the first person we see. You know, there's wisdom here and you need to, you know, make sure that you're being wise in who you're marrying and so on. But this is warning against undue delaying of marriage, just delaying for no reason. Because you're you are creating a wider range and a wider time span of temptation. Okay, we've only got three more told you this was a long list um third to last polygamy polygamy is forbidden in this commandment now that may seem a little bit strange to discuss polygamy right because we see that earlier in the scriptures particularly in in the patriarchs say abraham and jacob jacob's a good example and he had two wives a couple of concubines abraham had sarah and then hagar And we see in the scriptures people with multiple spouses, particularly husbands with multiple wives. And we can say, well, wait a second. How is polygamy forbidden in this commandment? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Why why were those people having multiple spouses? And we don't have time to go into a full treatment on this issue. But just as an overarching, you know, easy fix sort of answer, I think we need to recognize that God often... God often is so gracious that he tolerates sin that we as his people are blinded to because of the culture in which we live. Okay? 
in the ancient period when Abraham and Jacob had multiple wives, they were in a culture where that was so standardized that if you didn't, it would almost be weird. You'd be, it'd be so strange. Now that doesn't make it right that they had multiple spouses, but God, for that period, tolerated it. And we say, well, why would he do that? That seems awfully strange. Well, think. Take a look at us as Christians in the 21st century. What is God tolerating among us that we are completely blinded to? What are Christians 500 or 1,000 years from now going to look back on our generation and, and point out and say, hey, why were they doing that? That is so against this scripture passage over here. How could they do that? How are they so blind? Well, it's easy because we get blinded by the culture in which we live. I, I have suspicions about what those things might be that people would point back to and say, well, I can't believe Christians did that. Or I can't believe Christians didn't do that. But God in his graciousness tolerates so much sin. And that is why he tolerated multiple spouses in the patriarchs particularly and then other people throughout the Old Testament. And so the reason why though theologically polygamy is forbidden in this commandment and why that is God's main purpose for marriage is because if you have multiple spouses, you can't be wholly devoted to any of them. You are always divided between them. You know, right away in Genesis 2 and 3, when God established marriage, it's one man and one woman. They'll cleave to each other and become one flesh. It's the only way it can be done. And so polygamy is forbidden. Um, second to last, unjust divorce or desertion. Talk about that more in a second. And then finally, impure songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and may I add, because these didn't exist yet when this was written, movies and other entertainment. Right. Imp basically, impure entertainment. Entertainment that both explicitly displays and promotes and standardizes unfaithfulness in marriage. Right. And here's why. Now, not, it's the, I don't think that this is saying that if you, that a little bit is going to, you know, bring the wrath of God upon you or something, if you accidentally see something in a movie or something, okay? There's, there's different levels here, but what it's saying is, on a whole, watch what you are taking into your mind. Alright, be careful what you're watching, what you're listening to, what you're allowing to enter in, because it changes you. We talked about this a lot last week. This is why, like, like I said last week, Paul tells us to think about what is pure and what is good. Why? Because then we are going to become more pure and more good. When we study the scriptures, we become more like God because we're reading the word of God. God designed us this way to be affected and changed by what we take in through our senses and what we think about and what we process. And he did that because he wants us to study him, his word, and that changes us. But when we, like the world, want to study and take in the bad things, that changes us little by little, subconsciously, and we need to guard against that. Okay? Now, that's a long list of stuff, and we could talk about each one of the. We could spend an entire week on each one of those things and systematically cover them. Right? We don't have time. You get really bored, and I'd probably get bored doing that too. Um, but that, those are the things that are listed in the Westminster Larger Catechism as to what is forbidden 
in this commandment. Now, right before the end, we learn that what was forbidden is unjust divorce and desertion. Now notice it doesn't say divorce and desertion is forbidden. It says unjust divorce and desertion. And that little adjective unjust right there tells us right away that there must be, at least in the minds of the catechism writers, a just kind of divorce and a just kind of desertion. And so that's what we want to talk about here. We want to ask the question, just as we're getting to the end here, we've got, some, got a little bit of time, so that's good. Does every divorce violate the seventh commandment? Does every desertion violate the seventh commandment? And what we're, what we're asking here is, is divorce an absolute? Take a look at the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, for example. For Rome you can never, ever get a divorce. There is never a biblical divorce, ever. Now, they, they will annul a marriage. And what they do when they annul a marriage is they say, well, the marriage never really actually existed. But that, to me, that seems a little backhanded. So, but anyway, they say there's no divorce whatsoever. So there you've got kind of an extreme. Right? No divorce at all. Scripture never permits it. But then you've got, you know, kind of another extreme over here, and says, well, you can get a divorce for any, any reason you want. If your wife burns your food on the stove, well, you can get a divorce. If you're having money trouble, get a divorce. Right? I mean, it's just ridiculous, some of the things here. But if you fall out of love, you can get a divorce. Oh, your, your vows don't matter anymore. Right? That's kind of the culture we live in. You can get a divorce for pretty much any reason. All right? And what we want to do is we want to ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? Is a divorce ever permissible? And firstly, when we're looking at this question, got to recognize, right, Malachi 2.16. I think you've all heard Malachi 2.16, but it says, God hates divorce. First thing we need to recognize, whenever we're talking about divorce, this is something God is not a fan of. He doesn't like this. God is never saying, yes, I'm so glad you got a divorce today. No, that's, that is not God's heart in this. God hates divorce because it stains the picture of his relationship to his people. Right? That's what we've been talking about. But with that being said, that God hates divorce doesn't mean God doesn't ever allow divorce. And he allows it because we live in a sinful world. And here we see in Deuteronomy 24.1, you can turn there if you like. I'm not going to read it though. Deuteronomy 24.1, God, shortly after he gives the Ten Commandments, says that a man may divorce his wife if he finds something indecent in her. Quote, something indecent. That's what, that's what it says in that verse. Now, there were two different interpretations among Jews about what that meant, that a man could divorce his wife if he found something indecent in her. The first tradition, which is kind of the conservative tradition, they said something indecent means sexual immorality, sexual unfaithfulness. That's when a man can divorce his wife. And then you've got sort of more of the liberal, the free, the freer understanding of that something indecent tradition. And the Jews of this tradition said, well, no, it doesn't just mean sexual immorality or sexual unfaithfulness. What it actually means is anything a husband doesn't like about his wife. And what's interesting is that when you have two different understandings of a law, a harder understanding, more, more strict, 
and a freer, more liberal understanding of the law, guess which one wins out in history? It's going to be the freer one because it gives you more freedom. And, of course, it was nice for husbands to say, oh, I like that interpretation better because now I can, I can uh, divorce my wife for any reason I want. And so that's the understanding of Deuteronomy 24 that arrives at Jesus' day. That's what Jesus had to face. And we see that in Matthew chapter 19. You can take a look at this with me. We need to move fast here. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And you see what they're asking. They're saying, Jesus, do you agree with the liberal understanding of Deuteronomy 24, that you can divorce a wife for any reason? And Jesus answered, this is verse 4, Have you not read that the one who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Well, that's a little, little chunk of text there, but you see what, what side of the tradition Jesus is establishing himself on. The Pharisees say, can a man divorce for any reason? Jesus says, no. No. From the beginning, no divorce was permissible. The only reason that God, through Moses, gave you a certificate of divorce is because of sin, because of your hardness of heart. And the only exception, the only way that a divorce is permissible in Jesus' mind here is through sexual immorality, sexual infidelity, through a sexual affair. That is a reason that Jesus outlines here. He's not saying Moses was wrong. He's just saying because of sin, because of your hardness of heart, God did allow for divorce, but it was only for this reason, sexual immorality. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so then, because that's not the whole story, Paul actually talks about divorce and remarriage in 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, lists out another reason for divorce another potential reason that would make it just. And he says in verse 15 that if the unbelieving spouse departs from a believing spouse, in other words, a believer and an unbeliever are married and the unbelieving spouse leaves, that is another situation where the believing spouse is no longer bound to the marriage, he says. He's not enslaved. He may depart to keep the peace. So a second reason in the scripture and in the Westminster Standards is irreconcilable desertion by an unbelieving spouse. And let's say you have a believing a spouse that says, I'm a believer, and that spouse departs. Then what do you do? Can you not get a divorce then? You still have to be married to them? Well, the reason I think the reason why Paul says this is because unbelieving spouses, you've got no way to get them back because they don't listen to the word. But if you've got a believing spouse, present the word. Tell them they have to come back. Show them the word of God that says that. And then if the spouse doesn't listen, you bring church discipline, you bring the elders, you bring it before the congregation, they're excommunicated. If they still don't listen, 
now by all by all the ability of human beings to understand what's going on that spouse that claims to be a believer is actually now an apostate an unbeliever and so that then qualifies for a just divorce because that spouse who has left though claiming to be a believer has proven now to be an unbeliever because will not respond to God's word and has not responded to any discipline and so shows him or herself as an apostate okay that was a really really fast treatment of divorce that was really really tough to do this quickly but notice something just as we close here okay notice something the scripture has a very 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 high view of marriage and a very 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 low view of divorce but God in his grace and in his understanding knowing that we're in a sinful world where injustice is going to happen in marriages has provided in realistic situations a way for people who have been wronged to be saved from that situation and I'm thankful to him for that because I have witnessed very very bad divorces not in myself or my family but in people that my family knows and it always ends so badly and I've seen spouses wronged so badly and I am so thankful that God has provided these ways out for those people who have been wronged. So that is the seventh commandment. You see that you shall not commit adultery. When someone commits adultery against you, the scripture does have these ways out. But always remember this. God never wants divorce to be the first option. right? God wants to restore a marriage. He wants there to be forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation and rebuilding. He doesn't want the divorce to be the first option. But in the event of the hardness of heart of one person, God does provide aid. And I think that is a remarkable demonstration of God's grace. Let's uh, close in prayer here as we conclude on the seventh commandment because we are over time. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your grace with this whole issue of, of marriage and, and divorce, and it's a difficult topic. It's a hot button for many people, and it's a thing that many of us have maybe experienced in our, ourselves or our families or people we know. Lord, I pray that you would just remind us of your grace. And Lord, that you would remind us that when we have failed to follow the seventh commandment and any of the things we talked about this morning, that you would remind us of the truth of your gospel. We are not saved because we performed the works of your law so perfectly, but we're saved because Jesus performed the works of the law so perfectly. And we thank you for that, Father. I pray now that you'd prepare us this morning to sing praises to you in the service and to hear Pastor Adam preach your word. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.